Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, physicians at McMaster's Children's Hospital are calling for the return to in-person learning as soon as possible before the negative impact on kids even worsens. We're going to get you some details on that. The Fraser Institute has released a new study on the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and the different responses around the world. According to this study, Canada ranked very poorly on testing rates in hospital beds. Livio DiMatteo, senior fellow at the Institute, joins us with the data. And Canada knew about the PPE supply concerns way before the COVID-19 pandemic. So why were we still unprepared? We're going to delve into that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to focus on the, the story that we've been covering through the course of the morning here, and that has to do with, well, the concern about opening the schools again. Now, I know that there's only a few weeks left in the school year, quote-unquote, uh, but a number of specialists are now saying, look at the the cost of, of having these schools closed, and I'm talking about the, the physical and mental cost, is overwhelming, and something needs to be done. A couple of days on the program, you may remember, uh, we talked to Dr. Sean Watley, and uh, he was talking about the mental health impact that this is having on our kids. And he says that CHEO, which is the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, has never seen this much help needed for youth. CHEO, Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, is saying, hey, we need help, guys. We're overflowing. We've never seen this much mental health problems in the young people, the youth population in the last 30 years. And so uh, the data is out there. And, and I think people are starting to talk about the, the unintended consequences or the misery, shall we say, due to our response. But to your point, we need to be talking about it more. Well, and we are going to talk about it more because uh, some of the experts at McMaster Children's Hospital have uh, jumped into the conversation as well. And uh, we're pleased to, to welcome Dr. Martha Fulford, who is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster University Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences. Uh, doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you back with us today. Well, thank you for asking me. Let's talk a little bit about what you see on the ground. We can get caught up in statistics here about, you know, percentages of, of, of new cases and numbers going down, and it, it can be a little mind-boggling sometimes, but you're the ones that are on the front line. You're seeing the impact this is having on, on youth. What do you see? We are seeing dramatic increases in mental health issues, and that is a whole spectrum. It's from the very serious, it's the the really significant increase in in uh, children with eating disorders and some of them much younger than we've ever seen uh, on the and that that's the the bulimia the anorexia the really severe eating disorders and that's a, a manifestation of maybe the only thing a child can control and and so it's a way of sort of responding to 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 the situation we've also seen the opposite end of the spectrum with marked obesity and that's because of course children are at home they're isolated they're in front of a screen we're not letting them outside we're not letting them play we're not letting them take part in sports we're seeing uh increase in uh suicidality and more severe uh suicide attempts uh and of course you don't wait to count a an actual suicide, that's the end point. You want to make sure that, that no child or teenager is driven to that stage. And so we're at the stage where we're starting to see marked increases. We're seeing marked increases in violent behavior, actually, in acting out. We're seeing increases in what's called somatization. And that are um, these are kids that are showing up with headaches, with stomach aches, with behavior problems that, that are, again, a manifestation of, of the mental problems. Uh, we're we're hearing descriptions and it's anecdotal and people are saying, oh, it's just anecdotes. But at some point, the sheer volume of what we're hearing has to be taken into account. Children who are too scared to go outside, temper tantrums, uh, regression of milestones, children who are toilet trained who are now sort of regressing in that respect. So it is just a, a marked accumulation of adverse effects and that's the immediate thing. And when we talk about what we're seeing now in young children and teenagers, these are very important formative years. These are when patterns for life are established. So the, the harms and what we're seeing now are setting this large group of children up to, to essentially have problems and, and fail in a lot of ways in their future. And school, people think, oh, it's just school. But one of my colleagues described it this morning, and I thought his comment was brilliant, it's social starvation. Mm -hmm. We are starving our children, and this is having a profound negative impact at this point. 
Doctor, are we naively assuming that as soon as the COVID uh, pandemic is over and the lockdowns are over, whenever that might be, later this summer in the fall, that everything's just going to go back? We can just flick a switch and the kids are going to be fine again? No, no. I think uh, when we're talking, actually, this is a very important point. We're, we actually all believe schools should reopen because that uh, ability to sort of normalize um, life, start to have interactions, start to be able to play, see their friends. But the investment that we're going to have to make in our children, and actually a lot of adults as well, but we're talking about kids right now. I mean, we there needs to be a very um, long-term investment in, in, in trying to fix some of this stuff. We need a lot of investment in education because we're going to have children who have lost milestones. We're going to have situa- we're probably going to have situations where we may need to consider double cohorts where children need extra help. They might need to sort of repeat some stuff. This is a very long-term uh, situation uh, that, that not just at the hospital level but across society that we need to acknowledge and look in, uh, and plan for. And that does require uh, long-term investments. I don't think th- things are going to bounce back because of the long-term implications and what's going to happen with them. And and, and as uh, one of your colleagues, of course, uh, had been mentioning, and, and I think it's well worth repeating here too, uh, hospitalizations, I mean, if you want to look at statistics, as we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, mm-hmm. that's, on, that's only one barometer. I mean, you're seeing other things that right. are happening within the household that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, move to uh, to hospitalization, but there's going to have to be some treatment. And with the, the influx of these cases uh, that you're seeing right now, do you and others have the resources? to be able to handle that? Uh, we're stretched thin. Uh, we're we're, we're uh, bursting at the seams. I mean, I'm an infectious disease physician, so I, I mean, I'm, I'm already seeing it just even when I'm doing my consults. But when I speak to my colleagues, in, in, in particularly who are dealing with the behavior and mental health things, people are stretched. At one point, I, I know you, you uh, put that quote from, from Ottawa, they they were so stretched at one point they're saying they might have to move into using the adult hospitals for the mm-hmm. mental health facilities, which is ironic because of course, you know, we've been so focused on COVID and transferring COVID patients and having adults maybe move into the pediatric ICUs as happened in Toronto, but nobody's talking about the pressures on the children's side and, and that we're now starting to, to look at what other resources we might be able to access. And so, I mean, COVID happened, and, and this is in no way to minimize the impact of COVID, but the, 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 we're over the worst of it, and, and this is where the vaccines have helped. And we need to now really, you know, pivot and turn our attention to this other sort of public health emergency that, that has evolved and start to look at what can we do, what resources do we need, what long-term planning we need. The schools are critical for our children and education, and that needs to be acknowledged. It's going to need investment. We're going to have to focus on that because the future of our country, of our province, is our children. It is their education. This is probably the single most important investment I think any any government could make is actually planning for the future, and that is our children. Some people are going to hear this conversation, Doctor, and I'm sure you've probably already received some of this feedback that say, what's the big deal, school? You know, so they got somebody to play with at recess. So, you know, what, you know get over that. Um, uh, there's a, a, an attitude here that this is not such a big deal after all. Now, you've seen uh, the result of this, through the number of patients that, that you and, and your colleagues have been trying to treat with the, uh, these these concerns and these disorders over the last little while. But the school, to, is, to, by your description alone, is, is much more than just a, 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 a social time. There's a social interaction i mean we are i guess by definition social beings aren't we yeah we are it's unfortunate that uh for me anyway that that i would you know that education schools are dismissed we we have devalued them and, and it's uh, i think that schools were probably one of our most valuable resources and and education as i say i mean just off topic, if you want to know if we get another pandemic in 20 years, the cure for that pandemic will be the education of our children today. But that's off topic. Uh, the school and, and it's, it's friendships, it's relationships, it's exploring the environment, it's uh, expanding boundaries, it's music, it's sports, it's all these other things that, that are what form us. And, and allow us to become functioning adults. Isolating a person into a room staring at a screen is is not, it's, we've done this because we had to at the beginning. We've learned in the last 14 months, this is not a good way uh, for, for kids to learn and we're seeing the harm. 
But but even for adults, being entirely by yourself in a room staring at a screen is not a healthy environment. And so the the other thing is that schools um, and and maybe you know, contact with other people. So whether it be the, the 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 coach at a hockey game or the coach at a soccer game, it's the teachers, it's the guidance counselors, pick up a lot of issues. They'll pick up developmental problems. It's a huge flag, uh, or it's a hugely important resource to pick up abuse. Actually, uh, this is one of the the main ways we discover that children are are in really dangerous and compromised situations. And all we've done is actually leave them unmonitored in these very dangerous, abusive situations. So it, it's much more than just, oh, playing with their friends. It, it's trying to plan for that. And then thinking of, of long-term, and it, we have to start to plan for that. There are many, many studies that have shown that literacy, the ability to read in grade three, is a very strong predictor of the ability to graduate from high school. And socioeconomic success is intimately tied to health. And I think if you speak to any of our intensive care physicians, the people who are most likely to be in our ICU now are the people who have marginal jobs, who are who are uh, unfit, who have diabetes, who have hypertension, and these are all linked with with um, these are intimately linked factors. And so, failing our children now is going to actually have an impact on their health. And so, so we're we're, we're talking long term health when we talk about these things, and, and the value of an education simply. Uh, not just education, but all the benefits that one gets from the human interaction, the social interaction in school environments and organized activities, it, it cannot be minimized. It is critically important. What about uh, the impact that this is having on family interactions and relations? Uh, I, I know because I've heard, well, since this has been going on now into the third wave, uh, in some situations, of course, parents have had to take time away from work to be home with the kids because they're that young and, and they need that, that kind of supervision. Uh, some are trying to help out with the homeschooling. And I've heard from a number of parents that right now that said that's very, very frustrating because they're not qualified to do that. Uh, and, and as a result, they get frustrated. The children get frustrated. There's, there's, there's some animosity that grows as a result of this right now. Uh, and it's, it's one of these things that just seems to pile on top of the parents. And, uh, it's, it's, everybody's looking for a solution here right now and I, I guess what you and your colleagues are talking about here is, is look at part of the solution is to put them back in the environment where they feel most secure yes and and with trained educators teachers are trained to, to this is this is their area of expertise uh, and and they deserve credit for that this is what what um, you know they, they have this is their their profession this is what their training and expertise is and allow the experts to do what they're expert at doing but the the a lot of what's happened i mean there there the ripple effects across the board uh clearly single parents are adversely affected people who are already vulnerable are even more adversely effective this is probably uh, unfortunately put back a lot of women in in the workplace for uh, hugely because a lot of those jobs are the jobs that were lost. The, 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 the just a lot of recovery that's going to have to happen. I mean, we're we're focused right now uh, specifically on our children and and the importance of of school, but there are a lot of of ripple effects and and harm that that uh, you know, we, we can call it collateral damage. Some people call it inadvertent consequences, but. COVID happened, and, and fortunately, uh, we're, we're because of the vaccines and, and increasing immunity across the population, both from from natural infection as well as from vaccination, we're, we're over. We're going to be over the worst of it in terms of the need for hospitalization. So this is this is the good news, but but yes, now we need to turn um, uh, to to letting people begin to have normal lives. Uh, and we can see that that is happening. We can see it in, in other countries. We can see it in places like Israel, the United States, that are a little bit faster than us in terms of the vaccinating and opening up. But it, it's giving us permission to return to normal life, uh, I, I think, is very important. 
the Premier said yesterday in response to some of the, the comments from yourself and, and your colleague, Dr. Pernica and others, uh, that he wants to have a, a, a consensus among all of his experts. Uh, I assume he's talking about the science panel plus Dr. Williams before he even considers doing something like this. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to drag you into the politics of this, Doctor, but the reality here is that you're one of the experts. There are other experts, many of them, that said, look it, you've got a way what you're doing with the impact that it's having and and it's time to move on this we can't wait much longer here can we i think he has consensus uh on may 20th uh every pediatric organization in the province signed on to a united like a, a one letter all of them put out that statement saying it's time to open schools the association for the medical office of health in ontario has also agreed so dr williams thinks schools should be open all the medical officers of health think schools should be open. Uh, every pediatric, so every expert in pediatrics, uh, every organization has stood behind the idea that uh, schools should reopen. Uh, if you look at the Ontario Science Table, uh, they uh, actually, Dr. Juni has actually said that he thinks that schools are. Uh, he's. Uh, can you hear me? Sorry, my phone. Yes. Is, yeah. There's a bit of a bump yes, there. Sorry, we're I, good though. We're yeah, good. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Yeah. Um, so, and if you look at their modeling, if you look at the modeling from the Ontario Science Table, they, they use the, the, the term 11% increase as schools reopen. But if you translate that into the actual numbers, if you actually say, what does that mean? Because 11% sounds a bit alarming. If you look at our current case count, 11% means maybe 100 to 150 additional cases a day. And then the cases, of course, don't mean hospitalizations. If you translate to how many people get hospitalized, the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario, that 11% increase would be three to five extra hospital hospitalizations a day. And that's in the province of 14.7 million people. I think we can cope with that. Well, it begs the question, who's he waiting to hear from then, I suppose? Uh, doctor, we're going to have yeah. to leave it there for now. We're right out of time. Uh, please continue no. with the great work that you're doing. And uh, we're thinking about you and the great uh, challenges that are facing a lot of us because of this. And he's hoping that uh, our political leaders will understand the gravity of the situation as well. Thank you, for, as always, for this time today. Thank you very much. Dr. Martha Fulford, of course, uh, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital here in Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We'd like to think that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel with the pandemic and uh, the vaccination program, of course, is going to be a big part of that. But the analysis has already started about how we as a country handled what went on with uh, COVID-19 and are continuing to handle it right now. And there's been a great deal of analysis. And uh, frankly, uh, without trying to point fingers, I think we need to uh, be honest about what we have seen and what the data tells us and uh, it's not a very impressive picture Canada did not seem to be ready for this there's a new report out from the uh, the Fraser Institute that talks about that Canada actually ranks very poorly with testing rates in hospital beds uh, very key to successful COVID response uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Livio Dumatteo who is a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute and an economics professor at uh, Lakehead University uh, Livio thank you so much for the time good to have you with us today Good morning, Bill. Always a pleasure to uh, come back to Hamilton, even if it's via radio. Well, that's about all we can do these days, isn't it? The travel is, is uh, let me say, discouraged. It, but we're gonna we're gonna get there, Olivia. I'm ho- I'm sh- hopeful that we are. You know, I, I can remember covering the SARS epidemic, of course, uh, some years ago, and and as horrific as that was, I, I, the aftermath. There was a great deal of study that was done then too. You remember, of course, the report that uh, Justice Archie Campbell did, and they basically said, look at you know, we got caught off guard. But now we understand where we were shortcoming, and this is the playbook going forward. Uh, according to the data we're getting from the Fraser Institute here, uh, I don't know where that playbook ended up. It's in somebody's bottom drawer at Queen's Park, but we didn't seem to, to pay any attention to that, did we? Well, it's not that we didn't uh, pay attention to SARS. Uh, SARS was, uh, was a fairly traumatic experience. Uh, Canada was one of five countries that was very heavily affected by SARS in terms mm-hmm. of the number of cases. And in the wake of SARS, uh, we did do reports and studies. We did boost spending on public health. Um, and yet, uh, when this pandemic hit, uh, in the interim, uh, I think we grew somewhat complacent. Uh, we got through SARS. We got through H1N1. Uh, there was Ebola, and that didn't really you know, touch us at all. So uh, I, I think a certain amount of complacency did set in. And in that process, we uh, quietly over the span of the last you know, 15 years, quietly deactivated uh, our uh, global public health intelligence network, which was one of the best in the world. We mm-hmm. were actually providing input 
uh, to other countries as well as the WHO uh, with that. Uh, we allowed our stocks of uh, personal protective equipment to, to decline. Um, these, uh, in a sense, uh, left us unprepared, and once the pandemic hit, we, we moved exceptionally slowly uh, in terms of our response. Now, I mean, if you look at the comparisons in the report, I mean, the report is fairly long and fairly detailed, um, but it all depends, I suppose, on who you want to compare us to. I mean, if you compare us just to the 35 IMF advanced economies, uh, we did reasonably well. We weren't Belgium or, or Luxembourg in terms of the number of cases and, and in deaths per million. Uh, we were probably in the bottom third. We did relatively well. But the other comparators to look at those countries that were really hit heavily by SARS in 2004, and that's you know China, the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, Taiwan, Singapore, and Canada. And what's interesting is... Um, uh, if you look at the deaths per million during the current COVID pandemic for the year 2020, uh, they ranged from 3 to 22 deaths per million for China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore. Canada had almost 500 deaths per million. So it's true, you know, if you want to compare yourself to the U.S. or to Belgium, oh, you know, yes, we did very well. But if you compare yourself to countries that had advanced warning from SARS and seem to have set up processes to deal with the pandemic, uh, we didn't do so well. This is another element to this, too, and I, I, I'm getting a sense that this is a, a, a pattern that seems to be developing, though, uh, as we start to do some of this analysis, Olivia, and that's uh, obviously SARS and, and the pandemic caused a great number of problems and a lot of consternation, but I think what it also did is expose some of the shortcomings that we had anyway, uh, because all of a sudden our, our, our situation and our system became stressed, and uh, one of the stats I know you talk about in the report here is uh, hospital beds uh, per capita, and uh, that SARS didn't cause that uh, and, and 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 certainly COVID didn't cause that. But the fact of the matter is, is we were unprepared and we didn't have the capacity to be able to handle what turned out to be a crisis. Uh, there, there's uh, yeah, a fair amount of evidence uh, suggesting that. I, I mean, this is a long-term uh, issue uh, in Canada, uh, Canada, and, and, and some other countries. Uh, in the way they sort of run their hospital system, have uh, developed more of a just-in-time sort of hospital system yeah. where. Mm -hmm. Uh, people come in and out very quickly, and so they need fewer beds. Uh, in this pandemic in 2020, the statistical analysis showed that for each additional bed per thousand population, uh, the correlation was about 31 and a half fewer deaths per million, or almost 32. So uh, you might think, well, uh, how much can that matter? But even within the IMF countries, these are the advanced economies, all with excellent healthcare systems. There's quite a range. Uh, there, Japan is at the top of that list of 35 countries with about 13 beds per thousand people. Uh, Canada is 32nd out of 35. I, I think we're down there with uh, Denmark and Sweden. We're 32nd out of 35 with two and a half beds per thousand. And so that has made a difference uh, because in the end, uh, in the absence of vaccines, uh, which was the first year of the pandemic, you are left with the tools that you would have had even a thousand years ago with a medieval pandemic. You're left mm -hmm. with quarantines, lockdowns, and in a sense we had to have very stringent lockdowns as the only tool, mainly because uh, we had to ration our hospital capacity. And we saw that uh, with the reaction. I mean, you know, we had special hospitals set up. There's one at the Joe Branton Burlington and other places. Uh, thankfully, they were never used to capacity, but, you know, we, we saw the need to do something like that. And, and and you're right. I mean, we have a tendency and probably a propensity in this country to uh, the further away we get from a crisis, we tend to forget about the impact the crisis had. And as SARS might be another example of that. But as uh, as governments, uh, you know, move to try to balance budgets and all these other things that we are pressuring them to do on, on, an, on an annual basis, uh, they start looking for efficiencies, which means cost cutting, and, and healthcare probably is one of those areas that uh, that has been targeted because they figured, uh, you know, what are the chances of another pandemic? And, and uh, you're right, we're not the only country that got caught off guard like this, but I think it's a wake up call. It should be for us anyway. It should be, and um, it's it's it'll be interesting to see how it's dealt with. I mean, part of the problem is that uh, politicians are usually just only focused on the immediate future, usually the next election, and the yep. public tends to have a very short memory and tends to forget things. So um, it's going to take a fair amount of, of discipline to build more resilience into the healthcare care system. 
to deal with uh, the situation down the road. I, I mean, a lot of those deaths and the 500 deaths per million, uh, about 70% of them were long-term care and retirement homes. And um, in a sense, they, that did not generate a surge capacity in the hospital because many of the people in long-term care uh, have, have Alzheimer's or aren't mobile, and they didn't pick themselves up and, and go to the emergency and overwhelm it. Um, uh, the, the current trend towards the new variants is affecting younger people, and they're, they're not in a long-term care home. They pick up and go to the emergency, and that's why the concern about the ICU capacity has really uh, become much more problematic in dealing with the pandemic and why I suspect the government has really been very concerned. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago about lockdowns. Uh, very controversial here, of course, especially here in Ontario over the last little while. Uh, what does the data show us about this? I mean, when the first one happened, I think there was general consensus that, well, I don't like this, but if it's what we need to do, okay, we'll get onto this. Uh, by the third lockdown that we've had here in Ontario, there's a lot of pushback on this. How effective are they? Well, lockdowns do work, um, but they have to be uh, short, they have to be comprehensive, and they have to be enforced, and there has to be compliance. And so even in the, the stats seem to show that, you know, the, the, the lockdown during the beginning uh, worked quite well, in part, I suspect, because people were terrified and so followed the yeah. rules. Uh, but the, the problem is that uh, as people grew accustomed uh, to the pandemic, they all began to think that the virus was something that would happen to someone else. And so they began to bend the rules and interpret the rules themselves. I mean, you, you have many people who, on the one hand, say, oh, yes, they're following through the rules, and in their personal behavior, their home is like Grand Central Station. So, I mean, uh, how, how do you deal with that? Uh, you need enforcement. Uh, you need uh, you know, penalties, I suppose, for, for not following the rules. But you also need the resources, I guess, to enforce. I mean, you didn't have public health officers out in large numbers. Uh, you know, looking for infractions or, you know, at least uh, providing warnings that, you know, this was probably not the best behavior. And that's been a problem. So the subsequent lockdowns have been protracted. Uh, they only bring down the, the case numbers very, very slowly because uh, people are not, uh, in a sense, adhering uh, to them. We were given a protocol way back when in the first wave of this, of course, and, and we all know it. I think it's a part of our mantra now, you know, wash your hands, physical distancing. Uh, and, and then, of course, a couple of weeks after that was wear the mask. And I know there's been some pushback about the mask thing. I get that. But there's been, I think, pretty strong uh, compliance with that for the most part. But one of the other things that governments told us uh, that was going to be key to this, Olivio, uh, were things like uh, testing, uh, contact tracing, things of this nature. Uh, we never really got to the extent where, the, where that was as efficient as it should have been in this country no testing was also an important variable in, in the analysis uh basically the the relationship between tests and cases per million and deaths per million is sort of hump shaped uh that is as testing goes up cases go up and as do deaths because you're discovering more cases but eventually a sort of peak is reached and then beyond that uh, more testing actually brings down the case rate and the mortality rate and so uh, each additional 100,000 tests after you've sort of reached that peak uh, reduced deaths by about 21 per million. So testing was effective in identifying cases and, and, and getting them uh, dealt with. Uh, in testing, though, we, we sort of uh, were pretty borderline in terms of being almost in the bottom third. We were about 26th out of the 35 IMF advanced economies. So, uh, again, uh, we kind of lagged a bit in getting the testing up and running and I think that hurt us, uh, particularly during the first year of the pandemic. What about uh, the cooperation between levels of government? That's always a sticky point, especially when it comes to health care, but especially a health care crisis such as we've gone through right now. Uh, you know, the money needs to flow. There has to be some cooperation and some coordination between federal and provincial, uh, which is sometimes about as easy as hurting cats. I mean, it can be pretty difficult. Uh, did we play nicely with each other and were as efficient as we could be? I think for the most part, during the first half of the pandemic, there was a, a large amount of cooperation. Uh, but again, as the you know, initial waves were brought under control, uh, both levels of government began to play a certain amount of uh, diplomacy. I mean, sort of the vaccine ping pong is the best example, where yeah. uh, one level of government would complain there's not enough vaccine, and then the other one would basically, once they finally got it, dump it there and say, now it's your problem, you're not administering the vaccine fast enough. I mean, I don't think that was... a particularly constructive. 
Um, I, I think there may have been some coordination issues. For the most part, it functioned reasonably well, uh, but uh, th- there were some coordination issues. And I, I think part of the, well, I mean, philosophically, it all depends on who you think should be, I guess, running things. Um, the federal government, in a sense, uh, devolved a lot of things to the provinces. Yeah. Uh, and basically, uh, I, in my opinion, uh, this is not even in the report. This is not in the report, of course. This is just my personal opinion. Uh, the the federal government basically washed its hands of a lot of things. I mean, under the Constitution, uh, the Canadian you know Constitution, uh, the federal government uh, basically has an awful lot of powers should it choose to use them. And basically, they never basically declared uh, an emergency. Uh, I think the government was uh, reluctant to declare an emergency, and that was probably political, uh, because the government was worried that the provinces would complain about domineering federalism. Um, but they could have, you know, under the Constitution, uh, the federal government has the spending power under Section 106. It has the power of quarantine. Uh, I mean, the, the federal government has these old powers that are still there, even after the new Constitution, 81, and I think it it chose not to use them because it didn't want to be seen as overbearing. It, they let the politics, I think, dominate uh, what needed to be done. What about restrictive travel? Another very controversial issue. And we, we look at some of these other countries that you've uh, used as comparators here, uh, and, and including, well, that, not on the list, but in places like New Zealand and Australia uh, and, and Taiwan. They were very restrictive in the early stages. Was that an effective tool? Well, See, Canada is, in a sense, disadvantaged. We have a much closer border with the U.S. Uh, you know, the big advantage of Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand is they are more effectively able to, to sort of seal themselves off, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They're islands, and they can control their entry points a lot better than we can with this rather porous, you know, land border. Well, but having said that, we probably should have brought in, uh, I mean, the travel restrictions are most important, again, at the very beginning of an outbreak to prevent the outbreak gaining traction in your country. And so at the beginning, again, we delayed there. Uh, if you're going to continue to allow travel, again, the federal government, with the power of quarantine, should have moved much more quickly uh, to set up the quarantine facilities and manage them properly. If you're going to continue to have the amount of travel that we've had, you have to basically set up a process that is enforced in terms of who comes in. They're going to the government's going to have you know, you know, large facilities, barracks or warehouses, if you want to call it, where you stay for uh, two weeks and then you're released. As opposed to the system we used, where most of it was voluntary and you know people would go home to quarantine, but on the way home they'd go shopping and do a few other things. Mm-hmm. And again, that, I think that that was a problem, uh, and that's something that in future uh, would need to be addressed if you want to get your pandemic under control early on. Well, what I like about this report, it's very extensive. As you say, there's, there's a lot in this, and I would encourage our listeners to go to the webpage of the Fraser Institute and, and, and read it when they've got some time to do this. Uh, and it's, it's not a, a, an accusatory report. This is basically kind of like the old report card days, I guess, isn't it, Livio? They said, could do better, uh, and we need to do better. I, I think that's the takeaway here, isn't it? I, I think so. It's always about trying to do better. I mean, don't get me wrong. The politicians, the public health officers, this was a, a very difficult situation. I, you know, mm-hmm. I would not want to be in anybody's shoes having to sort of sit there and, and make those types of decisions. However, if you are in those positions, in a sense, you're supposed to be in those positions in the good times as well as the bad. And so when the bad times come along, um, yeah, you're going to have to uh, make decisions that probably aren't going to be popular. And uh, I think our politicians in the end, if you look at some of the decisions that were made, very often it was like they were negotiating with the virus. You know, what mm-hmm. what restriction can we put in? You know, how will this go over? I, I mean, you don't negotiate with the virus. I mean, the virus is the virus. I mean, you negotiate with people, I suppose, and you do have to get people to comply. But um, in the end, you know, it, uh, you you have to t- take decisions to safeguard uh, your public, and you know the first public you safeguard is is, is your own. I mean, uh, the, the purpose of the government of Canada is to make sure that citizens of Canada are, are protected and looked after, and uh, we seem to have taken an awfully long time in doing that for who knows what reasons. 
Uh, well, uh, this report should serve as a foundation, I think, for the discussion going forward on this. Uh, it's it's important that we understand where we were coming from and where we need to go to in the future, and I think this report uh, goes a long way towards getting us there. Uh, stay well, and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon down the road. Thanks for this today. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. Have a great Pro- day. You too. Professor Livio Di Matteo, of course, from, uh, well, Lakehead University, but also a senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to get back into this uh, Auditor General's report. Uh, pretty important stuff about how governments, and it's not just this current government, but past governments as well, uh, have prepared or not prepared, as the case might be. Well, this new audit says that the federal government was able to get desperately needed medical equipment to provinces and territories last year, despite some long-standing issues plaguing the national emergency stockpile. Mia Rabson has some details for us. Auditor General Karen Hogan says before COVID-19, the Public Health Agency of Canada ignored multiple warnings that its national stockpile of emergency medical supplies wasn't being properly managed. She says that meant the agency wasn't as prepared as it should have been for a massive surge in demand when the pandemic began. But Hogan says when the pressure mounted, Ottawa managed to get the needed supplies to provinces and territories anyway. Ottawa spent more than $7 billion on medical supplies and personal protective equipment last year, but Hogan looked only at the procurement of N95 respirators, surgical gowns, testing swabs, and ventilators. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. So did it have to be as uh, as hectic as it was then? Well, there's a body of evidence that indicates that we maybe dropped the ball a little bit, and this, uh, the numbers here indicate that it wasn't just this government. This has been going on for over 10 years. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Dr. Ann Collins. Dr. Collins is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, uh, pleasure to have you back on the program, Doctor. Thanks so much for the time today. Happy to be here. We all knew that uh, that there was going to be some concerns here about about stockpiles and about what we were going to have, and we saw the end result of that with the scrambling to try to find ventilators and 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 protective equipment, of course. And you know, we had to start looking, of course, at 3M uh, with the, the shipments that were supposed to go across the border and things of this nature. I, I guess the first question here, Doctor, is we in Ontario went through this, and in Canada went through this uh, with, with SARS a number of years ago, and the reports that came as a result of that uh, indicated you better be ready because there is going to be another one somewhere down the road. Uh, it sounds to me as if we weren't ready. Well, certainly going back to those early days uh, of the pandemic and, and being part of the, the group of many physicians scrambling to find PPE, no, uh, we were not ready. Um, and, and so that's why uh, we are very happy to see this report. Uh, we've said all along there are multiple learnings that we have to take away from the experiences of this pandemic and how we faltered with PPE um, in the beginning, in the beginning months, is clearly one of them. And, and we saw the end result of that, and, and you know, the, the Auditor General is quite clear in this. Like, you know, thankfully they were able to get stuff, probably not as much and not as soon as they wanted to. Uh, but in a perfect scenario, uh, that would have been on hand. That would have been someplace in a, in a warehouse or someplace that they simply could have said, okay, now we need that sort of stuff. Uh, the problem we have here is a political one, I think, as much as anything else. And as, as we looked at, at some of the fallout from what's happened with COVID, Doctor, uh, you know, the vaccine production, for instance, and we know that, you know, that years ago there used to be a lot more vaccine production in this country and it kind of fell by the wayside and previous governments actually sold off some of those uh, some of those companies and to private sector and they've moved off to other places in the world uh, decisions which seem to be at least in some people's minds uh, politically savvy at the time have kind of come back to bite us haven't they well certainly this pandemic has has raised a, an awareness um, about a, a lot of issues and certainly domestic supply around um, PPE in this instance and um, and more recently around vaccine supply is something that will very clearly need to be reviewed um, and with you know good collaborative discussions between different levels of government uh, federally and and provincially uh, we want to. Uh, learn um, how we can avoid the scrambling, uh, sometimes the confusing messaging that uh, not just physicians but Canadians in general have experienced during the pandemic. 
And, and that's something that has to be addressed as well. And I, I just have this mental picture in my mind and uh, of, of, you know, some government official, some, some look at this and saying, we're spending all this money on, on personal protective equipment. We haven't had a pandemic for years here. Do we really need to do that? Uh, we can cut back that number. We can cut back the funding for that. And and, and that's I've, I've seen it happen too many times. So that's the discussion that goes on in some political circles to try to, to you know, balance budgets or whatever the case might be. Uh, I, I don't know necessarily that, that governments that do that, uh, and they're all, to a certain extent, I think, culpable here, Doctor, but, I mean, if they understand the long-term ramifications and, uh, you know, remembering exactly why we're doing this in the first place. Well, I think what, how I would, what I would say about that is this. From a physician's point of view, having been better prepared would have saved probably at least six months of anxiety and worry for physicians and other healthcare workers who had challenges sourcing PPE. Like, for example, in my office, I couldn't for several weeks find a source of PPE. And so they, that had to have a, uh, it did have an impact on the mental health of, of those physicians and those healthcare workers trying to protect not just themselves, but their staff and their patients. So, so there's a cost there that needs to be borne in mind for the next public health emergency. We do have to have a, a better level of, of planning and preparedness. Um, we don't want to think about it happening, but for when it does happen again. Well, and it had an impact on us as well. I mean, you know, I, I know that a lot of people are pointing to those early days when we were told about, you know, the protocol, washing hands, social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. And initially they were saying, even some medical officials, as you recall, doctor, were saying, you don't need to wear masks. Uh, as a matter of fact, they suggested don't wear the mask. Well, one of the reasons for that was because there weren't enough masks. And they were concerned, uh, as you said, the frontline people in the hospitals and in offices such as yours didn't have access to that, and they're the ones that needed the most. And until we caught up with the supply, uh, then all of a sudden, you know, we everybody had a comfort level with that. But, I mean, it, it just indicates that, that we weren't ready at the starting line when we should have been. No, we weren't. Now, I think it's, it's fair to say that... W- there was catch-up, but we don't want to play catch-up again uh, in, a, in a future scenario. And, and we want to really take away here um, what, what needs to happen with better planning, better distribution, um, better communication. And if we don't respond this time collectively, uh, governments, um, health authorities, and, and, and in fact, keeping a, a monitoring um, accountable eye on that, then shame on us for this. This has been 15 months now. Um, uh, we cannot let this fall off anybody's radar. And that's a responsibility, I think, for the taxpayers. It's easy to point the figure at government and say, you know, for the last 12 years or so, governments, and there have been a couple of them in, in that time frame, uh, have dropped the ball here. But, you know, if we insist and we put pressure on them to not do that, they're going to listen to that. I mean, they, they listen to public pressure, too, and public sentiment. And if we say that's a priority, we don't want you touching that, we need that, uh, th- that's a one way to mitigate that. So, I mean, I think we've all got a role to play here, don't we? I think that uh, you're absolutely right. This pandemic has raised the awareness of healthcare in general. It's raised the awareness of deficiencies within our systems. Uh, people have been charged, if you will, about the inequities that the pandemic has highlighted. And I, I do uh, really feel that people are um, taking, ready to take more responsibility uh, for for their for their health and uh, wanting accountability uh, from our healthcare systems, it's uh, you know in terms of access, not just access to PPE for their providers, but access to a whole lot of other services. In many instances, what uh, COVID has done here is it's exposed some of those weaknesses. It did not. We were, I'm sure you've seen the Fraser report that uh, the Fraser Report Institute that came out just a couple of days ago talking about this. And one of the statistics that jumped out at me on that uh, was the ratio of beds per th- population, beds per thousand people. Uh, and Canada lags well behind a number of other nations in that regard. And, uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if that's simply a result of, of a number of governments, both provincial and federal, kind of nicking away at that. And you know, as, as you know, funding for, for for some primary care facilities uh it becomes reduced over a period of time uh 
there's, there are cutbacks, and and we weren't ready for a surge, and a surge certainly did come. And uh, you got to wonder in hindsight if we need to rethink of that whole process. Uh, no question that we do. Uh, you're talking really about a component of access to care, um, and it's not just access to hospital beds or hospital care, but access to care um, is a huge issue. It was an issue prior to the pandemic. It will be um, amplified by the, the, the pandemic. Five million Canadians do not have a family doctor or access to a primary care team. Uh, we need to start looking at innovative ways to to um, to affect change in that area of our our healthcare delivery. And again, it comes down to collaboration and cooperation between um, provinces, between the federal government, um, all players involved with the delivery of healthcare to con- people living in Canada. Well, there was a discussion, I know you're fully aware of this, because you and I talked about this on the program, uh, this is pre-pandemic, uh, about a commitment that the, the, the federal government had made about more money for health care, which is going to go to the provinces, but he said not yet. Well, then, of course, you know what happened with the pandemic, and everything's kind of been put on hold and redirected. But we need to have that discussion again, uh, and, and again, uh, it's not just to say, okay, there's going to be more money, and we got to make sure that it goes to the proper places and be prepared for, for these sort of situations, and, and you know, basically offer I think a more efficient service here. I think we got a little lazy in the last little while. For the longest time, uh, we always thought, well, okay, Canada's got the best healthcare system in the world, bar none, and we're going to be there. We're not there yet. We're not at the top of the list anymore. And and I think we have to reassess exactly how governments are handling this uh, and giving you in the medical profession the tools that you need. Um, for sure. Uh, and, and again, this is something that the CMA has uh, called for throughout the pandemic, that there needs to be funding is an issue. But again, that needs to be discussed um, collaboratively between the federal and provincial and territorial governments um, on how and, and how that is best uh, delivered. We are pleased to see that the federal government made a commitment of uh, extra monies to the provinces to deal with the backlog, another huge issue created by this pandemic. Uh, but clearly, uh, there will be greater demands going forward. We do not know the full impact yet of this third wave that many parts of the country are experiencing. So uh, there's much work left to be done, many conversations that yet need to be had. Well, you raised an issue about you know the lack of, of primary care physicians and, and, and the number of Canadians that don't have family doctors. That was a huge issue, front burner issue for the longest time. We're not hearing a whole lot about it anymore. And, and I would venture to say, doctor, a lot of people think, well, it's not an issue anymore. They've obviously resolved that. But, but clearly it's not. I mean, we know that there are older physicians that are retiring. There's nobody to take over their practices. Uh, there are still stories I've heard, and I know you probably know more about, but that, that I do, about access to from medical school, for instance. You know, you've got some aspiring medical students that actually have to go overseas to, to get the training that they need because there's only so many spaces available. I mean, the, we, we need to have a pretty intense discussion about this whole system. There are many issues uh, that contribute to access to care. Training of number, a number of physicians is certainly um, one of them, uh, that we um, perhaps don't train enough physicians to meet the needs of our population. It is not a problem in any way that has gone away. Uh, we continue to uh, make the call for um, uh, to see action on the commitment that every Canadian have um, a family physician or a primary care team. We know that younger physicians are, are uh, wanting to practice in a situation where there are Others in the group where there's support from nurses, nurse practitioners, social mm-hmm. workers, uh, community-based workers where you can meet the patients where they are and meet the needs that they have in that area. So, no, it's not gone away. Um, we continue to advocate for it, uh, and it's important to those 5 million Canadians who are, are without that access. We talk about what's going to be happening going forward, and there seems to be an, an awful lot of speculation uh, among a number of epidemiologists and others, doctor, that uh, that says, look, we're going to have to learn to live with COVID. Uh, it may turn into a seasonal thing. We may have to get inoculated every year, not unlike the flu shots, et cetera. Uh, 
but what what does that do to the dynamic of medical care? I mean, because I know people have always tried to draw the the parallel and say, well, come on, it's just like the flu, and people die from the flu every year. Uh, we, yeah, we have flu epidemics sometimes, but it, they don't inundate the ICUs the way that COVID has. Uh, do we have to prepare and just accept the fact that this is going to be with us, and we're going to have to prepare the for treatment of people that are going to have severe cases for this going forward? I think the best way that we can prepare for this is to to do what we've done throughout this pandemic, to to listen to what the scientists say, to listen to what um, epidemiologists, those who work with modeling, those who work with evidence, uh, public health officials, they are the ones that will, um, if you will, look into the future and best advise us on what measures we are going to have to continue um, to um, to carry on with uh, as we move forward and, and out of this. So I think that's where our best advice lies on, uh, on where and how we will have to, um, will we wear masks forever? I, I don't know the answer to that, but those are the people that will best advise us. And, and you know, the use of ventilators, things of this nature, I mean, to, to treat people in ICUs, uh, the number of beds in ICUs, there's so many different aspects to, to that discussion that we're going to have to go forward. Uh, how do your members feel about this? It's going to change, at least there's a possibility anyway, that it could change the delivery of health care, even at the primary level. Well, it certainly has. Uh, as I've often said, virtual care very quickly became one of the silver linings in the pandemic because it allowed us to to, um, to maintain contact with patients, to provide service to patients uh, at those times when we were in lockdowns or advised uh, to minimize face-to-face contact with people. Uh, virtual care is not going to go away. Um, many patients appreciate that uh, ability to have phone or and, and or um, video contact. It's made it easier for some older people uh, people in rural and remote communities. Um, so that's one aspect of this that will change, um, change medical practice going forward. Uh, infection control measures likely will uh, remain top of mind. They always have been, but with perhaps a new dynamic to those. So yes, we will. We, it's not going, we talk about getting back to normal. Um, and if normal is what it was like um, pre-January 2020, that's not likely where we're going to be. Well, uh, we need to listen to the voices of the people that are on the front lines and the people, as you mentioned, that have the science on this. And, and uh, Doctor, I want to thank you for the great work that you and your organization do to make sure that that message gets out there. Thanks so much for the time today. It was great talking with you again. Great talking to you, too. Thanks very much. Take care. Dr. Ann Collins, who is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.